and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're speaking to Michael Doncourt, author of Hold. We discuss the importance of dialogue in building relationships between characters, the license writing gives you to think of ordinary things in new ways, and the art of giving the reader just enough for them to draw their own conclusions. December 2002. The coffin was like a neat slice of wedding cake. Looping curls of silver and pink, fussy like best handwriting, wound around the box. It waited by the gashed earth that the men would rest it in. The mourners admired, clucking. Belinda made herself look at it. Her phone vibrated in her handbag, but she let it rumble on. She brought her ankles together, fixed her head tie, and straightened her dress so that it was less bunched around her breasts. She passed her hand over her puffy face and then saw the eyeliner had rubbed onto her palm in streaks. Belinda's inspection of her messy hands was interrupted by the shouting of the young pallbearers on the opposite side of the grave. They stripped off and swelled the cloths that had been draped over their torsos moments before, then called for hammers. Three little boys, perhaps six or seven years old, flitted back with tools heavier than their tiny limbs. The children hurried off with handfuls of sweet chinchins, nearly falling into the hole not meant for them, and only laughing light squeals at how narrowly they had avoided an accident. Belinda wondered if she had ever laughed like that when she was their age. The men started to thud away the casket's handles, eager for the shiniest decorations, the ones that would fetch the highest prices in the market. She knew it was what always happened at funerals, and that the bashing and breaking was no worse than anything else she'd seen in the last few hours. But as the men's blows against the handles kept on coming, the sound became a hard hiccuping against Belinda's skull. Her chin jutted forward like it was being pulled, and her whole body tightened. Belinda tapped the heel of her court shoe into the red earth, matching her galloping blood. Soon, wrenched free of its metal, the coffin's surfaces were all marked with deep, black gouges. Someone tried to move Belinda with a shove. She remained where she stood. The pallbearers strutted and touched their muscles. Some yelped for the crowd to cheer. There were whines from older mourners about sharing, relatives and fairness. Sister! an excitable man said, pushing a brassy knob towards Belinda. She let it fall from his grasp and rolled at her feet. It was not enough. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Um, (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Um, For those of our listeners who've yet to pick up a copy of your debut, Hold, could you tell us what it's about? So Hold is really about three young girls, Emma, Belinda and Mary, but at its heart it's about Belinda, really. And Belinda is a 17-year-old house girl, and she cleans the huge house of uh, two people that she calls auntie and uncle in Kamasi. And she's a brilliant house girl. She's very diligent and sensible, and she does the right thing. And she looks after another house girl, Mary, who's 11, very kind of kindly and sensibly. Uh, 
And at the beginning of the novel, auntie and uncle have some friends come over from London, some, some Ghanaian British people called Nana and Doctor. And they meet Belinda and they think, goodness, isn't she marvellous and well-behaved and proper? And they're particularly interested in that aspect of Belinda's character because back home in London, they've got a daughter called Amma, who's 17 and used to be a kind of fantastically A-starry, perfect, sensible girl. But in the last few weeks, has started behaving in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. And so Nana and Doctor think, gosh, if we could just get Belinda to come over to London to meet Amma... Uh, Belinda could fix her. And so the first kind of big dramatic event in the novel is Belinda saying goodbye to Mary uh, and then moving over to London. And then the kind of bulk of the novel is about the relationship between Belinda and Amma and about Belinda and Mary kind of keeping their bond alive through phone calls and stuff like that. What a wonderful description. Yeah. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about how the idea for the novel first came to you and how long it took you to write? So... When I was growing up, every few summers, my mum would pack me and my sisters off to Ghana for a lovely summer holiday. And we'd spend six weeks there, essentially, just living a lovely life in Ghana. And often we were staying in uh, quite middle-class family homes. They'd be kind of relatives of ours or kind of friends of the family. And it's sort of typical for that uh, level of Ghanaian society to have staff. And often we would find ourselves in situations where the staff were... Uh, the same age as me and my sisters. So I'd be being served my breakfast or had my laundry done by someone who is like eight years old. But I was always told, you know, this young girl, typically a girl, isn't someone that you kind of need to talk to or play with. It's just someone who's in the house. So house girls were this kind of silent spectre in the house uh, who seemed like they could potentially be friends but were always kind of kept at a distance from me. And so that kind of idea, this sort of knocked around my head for a few years um, and then when I got to university I suppose I started reading Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's work and I started thinking about the middle class version of Africa that she was presenting and still thinking about the idea of these house girls and I thought okay there's something that could come out of this so I started trying to think about what the life of a house girl might entail uh, and that kind of slowly turned into Belinda's story. Uh, and I say slowly because it took me the best part of a decade to write the whole thing. Uh, so yes, it was a, a long and gruelling process, but uh, one that taught me an enormous amount, actually. And the result's fantastic. Yeah, you Yay. thoroughly enjoy it. <laughs> can't yeah. rush perfection. Um, and as you say, it focuses on a female character. Mm. And females, it's a very female-driven book. In fact, there's, you know, the presence of men is really rarely felt. And, yeah. you know, it's two women running our side hustle. <laughs> We're super on board with that. Um, can you tell us a little bit how you approached creating female characters as a man? And, you know, how you rounded them out and made them so believable? It's a funny thing, because I maybe quite naively, when I started writing the novel, I didn't really think about the challenge of making women. I didn't really think about um, any kind of awkwardness behind me being a man trying to kind of present these female lives. And I suppose part of that is because of the household in which I was raised. So I grew up with my mum and my two older sisters. And a lot of my friends at primary school and secondary school were female. And so I felt like I had a lot of quite rich material 
um, from my relationships with all of those people and from listening to the kinds of things that my female friends and my uh, mum and sisters kind of went through as they kind of navigated the world. So I didn't feel uncomfortable about it at all. And in some ways, I'm really pleased that I kind of entered into that bit of the writing process without any anxiety, because I think it would have made me um, write in a slightly artificial way, you know, trying to kind of shoehorn in kind of like girl stuff, um, where in fact, I just didn't think about that at all. and just thought more about uh, what these characters would do in this given situation. Uh, and that seems to have kind of worked out fairly well. People seem to find it convincing. So it is completely convincing. You execute it fantastically. Like the char- the characters are wonderful. They're so wonderful. And but did you um, did you give it to any females in your life to read, or were they were they kind of your? Did you choose female first readers, or were you not particularly? Cool? No, no. And actually, when I did show it to female readers, the kind of gender issue was not the thing yeah. that kind of caught their attention. So there were kind of more technical things about structure and about backstory of characters. Um, yeah, so that seems to be the focus of the kind of initial comments, really. Yeah, and um, and one of the things that I'm enjoying so much about the book is the characters that you've created and the relationships between them. Mm. Obviously, you have um, Belinda and Mary to start off with, and Mary's fantastic, I love her. And obviously, Belinda and Emma, Belinda and Nana. That, that it's just wonderful characters that are really believable and really... Um, yeah, it feels very real. Mm. Um, and so how did you go about building these relationships between your characters? And what do you think is the secret to kind of building believable good relationships in literature God, that's a great question Thank you. Uh, <laughs> i think i spent a lot of time thinking about dialogue and uh, about the ways in which these characters would talk to one another and making sure that each character had a very kind of distinct way of communicating uh, that reflected something about who they were and where they where they came from and that sort of fed into my kind of thinking about their relationship. So dialogue first and then kind of events came out of that. And I suppose something that helped with that and helped to kind of form the relationships between the characters is that I read out the dialogue to myself quite a lot. So a lot of my writing process involved me sitting in my room, just sort of talking to myself essentially um, and getting a sense for whether this is actually how conversation flows or whether it felt a bit halting in some places or whether it needs to be sped up in certain places. So I think really focusing on the dialogue between the protagonists was the way that I kind of made their relationships feel convincing. Mm. Mm. Great tip. Uh, and because dialogue is something that a lot of authors do struggle with, mm. did you find that, you know, to get believable dialogue, you had to really work hard and get rid of, you know, the ums and the ahs yeah, and the pauses? Of, and listening to you speak, you're very articulate. I say like. <laughs> I say like all the time. I'm always erring and umming, which is part of yeah. kind of cadence, but yeah, yeah. at the same time for readers to just read ers and ums and kind of and you know, it's very boring. Yeah. What what was how did you go about that? It's a really interesting point actually. So uh I suppose with Amma's dialogue that was particularly pertinent. So in early drafts, there was a lot more umming and erring and lots of liking because I was trying to really get across that vivid sense of how young people speak. And when I showed it to my editor for the first time, I'm sorry, actually, when I showed it to my agent for the first time, uh, she said that it was irritating 
and really annoying. And even though you got a sense that I was trying to kind of make the speech sound authentic, you only needed a kind of hint of that rather than what I was doing at the time, which was to kind of overemphasize it. So I remember spending one afternoon basically just sort of searching for like <laughs> across the whole manuscript oh, wow. and spending like hours being like, do I want that like or not that like? What, what? Um, so. It, it was a very tricky kind of balance, actually, to get Amma's voice right. And I think in the end, we went for, or I went for something that gave you a sense of her pretension and her her kind of naivety, but without labouring it too hard, because you've got to give the reader a sense to, or an opportunity to kind of get to grips with this character themselves without you kind of forcing this information at them too mm. aggressively. That's sort of where the magic happens, isn't it, between the writer and, and the reader, that you have to trust that the reader is just going to get yeah. what you're trying to do with a certain character. And and actually, you know, the amount of, you know, you read books and then it does, it comes alive, you, you create, you know, what they look like in your head and you create what they sound like in their head. And just from the content of the dialogue and those, like you say, those little hints, mm. you get the sense that, yeah. you know, she, you know, people are born in a certain era or are of a certain age. And it's such, I think it's such a skill, isn't it, to get that, to nail that on. Did you, did you kind of write a lot of, like a lot to start off with and then kind of um, take away just so that you could imply more stuff? Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. So the first few drafts were very, explanatory I mm. suppose is a good way of thinking about it and I think that explanatory kind of impulse in the writing was to do with me not having confidence and kind of thinking oh well if I don't kind of spell this out explicitly then people aren't going to understand or they're going to get confused uh, and then as I kind of went through the drafting process more and more was kind of taken out as I realised that actually I sort of covered a lot of ground quite quickly early on in the novel and did it need to keep kind of hammering the message home mm. um, and it I don't know it meant that there were lots of kind of clunky passages that were quite repetitive that I got to move out and it helped the pace of the thing kind of move along a lot more swiftly I suppose you probably need to get it all down in, your, in the first instance yeah. just to make sure that you've got it clear in your head and then that's probably quite a nice like yeah process just totally to kind of, yeah. totally and I think you're right that some of the early drafts of the novel were for me a kind of blueprint or a kind of guideline for what I was trying to do and once I kind of had that world fixed and I kind of had a sense of my intentions then I could afford to be a bit freer with it and kind of get rid of some stuff. How many drafts did you end up having? OMG. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's a fun question. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? I totally lost track. I totally lost track of the number of sort of revisions and new documents and whatever but I think I'm going to say about six complete drafts from beginning to end, um, where I kind of really sort of went through with a fine-tooth comb and looked through every single page, maybe about six, maybe seven times, actually, yeah. I think what you just said about, you know, sort of writing too much and then pairing back covers basically, you know, everything from first drafts to edit the editing process yeah. to pacing to character development. I think you just pretty much nailed it. I just <laughs> stop now. So. Are you an English teacher? <laughs> hmm, it's you should say that. <laughs> That's probably, it probably helps in some way, like the kind of ex explaining of it. Yeah, yeah. it does. It yeah. does. Yeah. Um, so obviously Hold has a really strong theme of identity, mm. you know, so um, it's the, the sort of struggle to define yourself and to be who you are despite what culture and ethnicity and other people's opinions dictate, which is something we obviously all struggle with. Um, Amma's kind of stuck somewhere between Western and Ghanaian culture, not really feeling at home with either and also kind of struggling with her sexuality. Yeah. And Belinda is figuring out who she is without a mother and also kind of away from the role of, of the house 
house girl yeah. um, for the first time. So um, I'm interested in whether you, you set out to write Hold as a identity, with identity being a major theme, or was that just kind of the story that you ended up telling? Do you know, it's sort of the story I ended up telling. I knew from the outset that I wanted these two or three girls actually to go on a kind of journey for one of a less cheesy term um but to kind of travel through the novel and find out things about themselves and to find out those things about themselves through kind of various conflicts but i never really had the word identity in mind because i think again maybe kind of connecting to what we were talking about earlier in relation to gender if i'd sort of been thinking right i'm going to write an identity novel it would have been quite crass and quite boring and you would have known from the outset exactly what the outcome of the novel was, which no one really wants. So it sort of developed that kind of aspect of it as it went along, but I didn't kind of think, I'm going to write the great identity novel. Of course. Um, Did you have it plotted out? Did you know the story or was it? did you just write and see kind of where the characters took you? A combination of those two approaches, really. So I kind of entered into it knowing a lot about Belinda's character, And knowing who she was kind of gave me a sense of how she might respond to various situations. And then I also had a sense of where I wanted her to end up. Uh, And then everything kind of grew out of that understanding, I suppose. Mm. And it's set in 2002. Mm. And a lot of it takes place in Brixton. Mm. And there are some absolutely (laughs) big Brixton flowers. It's where we hold the riffraff, in fact. And it's also, you you reminded me nicely of Speedy Noodle, which I'd forgotten about. Yes, a great institution. (laughs) And it's gone now. Rest in peace. Tell me about Speedy Noodle. It was just a cheap noodle place and I think it's been replaced with the Foxtons now it has so, which tells yeah, you something it tells you something about gentrification mm. it really does people need noodles not everybody needs noodle <laughs> price houses exactly that should be on a t-shirt I think you know <laughs> right done it's, <laughs> it's a new it's a new riffraff sideline and um, there are there are some excellent references to sort of pop culture and um idiosyncratic is that the right word yeah yeah, yeah. Saying, oh my god I'm so impressed with myself um, <laughs> references to that time and mm. um, how did you go about you know making sure that they were they were really accurate and what drew you to that particular time to set the novel so in 2002 I was around the same age as the protagonists uh and so all of those pop cultural references actually weren't that difficult for me to kind of research or whatever because they're still quite fresh in my mind mm. because that kind of age of you know, 17 to 18, is so pivotal uh, and stays with you, I think, for a really long time. It's very fresh in my mind. And also, how many years ago now? About three or four years ago, I was teaching at a sixth form college. So I was teaching kids of that age. So it all just felt very kind of fresh and live and important and at the forefront of my mind. And I really liked writing the kind of pop cultural references. It was a kind of nostalgic trip for me, really. Uh, there are a few things I could have needed to check out because the sort of difference between 2002 and 2003 is a little bit blurry in my mind but the kind of general feeling of things was very kind of fresh to me uh, still very much alive yeah i mean i don't think anyone's going to take to twitter and be like oh my god the spice girls released that single you in- never know <laughs> you never know <laughs> it did make me want my 3210 back very much <laughs> And also, like, but you you kind of reference specific buildings and stuff mm. on um, on Brixton High Street, yeah. which and and there was one um, reference that you had in there that was kind of um, a, a building next to the Ritzy, yeah. And like, so which I don't think was which I think has been changed. Not there anymore. Now. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, how yeah. did you um, how did you double check that you remembered rightly, or do you just remember it from being that age and hanging out in Brixton? Internet. 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 You know, so you just like a little bit of googling, like looking okay. at pictures. What a um, wonderful tool. I don't know where I'd be without it, you know. I think it's going to catch on this. 
<laughs> cool. Um, yeah. Oh, it's my go. Yeah. So, so another aspect of the novel that's really enjoyable as a reader is the um, when you relay how Belinda kind of sees the quirks and kind of pe- peculiarities of the of the UK. Yeah. Um, I love how she describes. You know, she thinks of blue tack as chewing gum. Yeah. And like just kind of little things like that that are that kind of make the mundane to someone who's from the UK kind of they make it makes it exotic it makes, mm, it makes you notice mm. uh, notice kind of the absurdities and kind of the things that are interesting yeah and um so what kind of um yeah what kind of tactics did you use to kind of get into the mindset of Belinda when she first arrived in London noticing those kind of things yeah I, I think you know what, it's really interesting because that's definitely something that I was kind of aware of when I'd kind of finished all of my editing and drafting and so on that there's this really clear sense of Belinda kind of um, finding all of these things really unfamiliar and strange and kind of looking at the world with fresh eyes. But I didn't sort of set out again to kind of write in that sort of way. I think thinking about the ordinary in new ways is what you're always doing as a writer. Mm. There are so many novels that I really love that are about domestic situations, uh, very recognisable, quite everyday situations that are presented in startlingly new ways. And so... I suppose with Belinda and that aspect of her character, it's just that, but kind of amplified, really. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you have a wonderful turn of phrase with quite a lot of stuff as well. Like, I think you you described the sky as bored at one stage, and I was like, what a amazing sentence! Yeah. Like so many amazing like little lines that just. Right. Well, <laughs> well I don't know. I started out uh, writing poetry and reading lots of poetry. Bingo. And <laughs> you know, I've always been interested in what poets can do with language Mm. and trying to find ways of bringing that into the novel and so there are little kind of moments where there are those sort of more reflective descriptive lyrical um moments i think and obviously with you know the book is is the book out it's about to come out i can't remember july 12th july 12th yes um (laughs) which is riff update yeah um but also, Michael's not there till September. Yes, I know. It's just, it happens to be, we just happen to have an event on the 12th of July. Double plug. Um, which, I don't know when this will go out. We might have already had it by, by the time I this goes so, out. Yeah. yeah, it was great. So, you were missed. I hear it was amazing. Yeah, it was. It was, oh it was brilliant. One of our best. Um, but before you got to the point of having a book, you, as we understand it, you were rejected hundreds of times. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. like hundreds yeah. of rejections. Yeah. We're talking, you know, triple figures. How did you deal with it? It's the it's the you know the problem that plagues most authors. And how did you pull yourself back up and keep going? Um, I suppose I should begin by saying that it's it's just terrible. There's no kind of two ways about it. That whole process of being constantly rejected is just emotionally devastating. I remember really clearly uh, a few years ago, whilst I was looking for an agent and sent it out to hundreds of agencies. I was going for a lovely walk with my partner and we were in the Lake District and having a really nice time and my phone pinged and it was a, a rejection email from someone that I was really sure was going to be the one and he said no and that just ruined the whole holiday and there were so many moments like that over that kind of period of trying to find an agent where I'd just be living my normal life and having a really good time and then this thing would kind of come and shatter the day. So it, it, it's horrible. I think in terms of surviving that uh darkest of periods um i would i suppose i'd just say keep looking for opportunities because actually the way that i found my agent wasn't through the traditional path of looking the writers and artists yearbook choose the agents that kind of look like they're doing your kind of thing and then send it out to them 
I had been rejected by lots of agencies and then I entered a competition and one of the prizes of the competition for, for the winners was that you got to spend some time with an agent and that was how I met Juliette Pickering, my fantastic uh, right-hand woman. Um, she came to one of those events. We had this thing called a literary breakfast, which is quite a grand and weird term. What did you eat? But um, I can't remember actually what I ate because I was so focused on making Juliet my agent. So I kind of plonked myself down next to her and just chatted away at her for hours. And that kind of started our friendship and our professional relationship. And I wouldn't have sort of found that opportunity if I'd sort of been you know, despondent and thought, oh, well, all of these rejections have made me feel really sad and gloomy. I'm just going to put it away. So trying to maintain your resourcefulness in that time and just seeking out loads of opportunities and grabbing them um, would be my advice, however hard it is. What was that competition? Just so I can make a note. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. So it was called the Inspires Scheme and it was run by Writers' Centre Norwich. Um, But they ran it for a year and then it kind of lost funding. But Writers' Centre Norwich do run other schemes to support um, writers at the beginning of their career. I think there's one called the Escalator Programme, um, which does a similar kind of things, the Inspires and Schemes, so it's worth looking into. Um, what, sorry. Sorry. When you got the rejections that you did, mm. did you then adapt your submission every time or did you or and um, were you were you were you submitting with the version of the book as it is now or was it that was my question oh sorry oh, oh, no, no, it was it's so it was so mind insane mind beautiful yeah, you know, my you know it must make you doubt you know your work did you ever think i have to go back yeah to go back and change it well it's funny because a lot of the rejections were just kind of standard form letters so oh thank you very much for your submission we are very busy at this time etc a few of them were more detailed than that and I had to kind of look through the feedback and work out actually what of this stuff is pertinent to the story that I'm trying to tell mm-hmm. and what stuff is actually to do with the editor, agent's kind of personal taste. And I suppose having done a master's in creative writing is quite helpful with that process because, uh, you know, we were in workshops throughout the creative writing course where you would be working with people who are writing novels that are really different from your own and giving you feedback that was basically to do with their own novel and not your own novel and you had to kind of work out what of that criticism was actually useful and what was more about what they were trying to do with their book Mm. um so that kind of i don't know ability to kind of sift out the kind of gems of the criticism i'd kind of got a bit of a sense of from doing my um ma yeah and where did you study that that at royal holloway okay and how was that course it was great, actually. It was great mostly because it was a year that I had devoted to writing. I kind of set myself this time that I was just going to write and kind of not think about working too much. And that it felt very luxurious um, for those reasons. And it was also a year when I started to describe myself as a writer, which sounds really pretentious, obviously. But I think owning that title enables you to do all sorts of things that you're not able to do if you don't kind of think about yourself in that serious way Mm. um and yeah also I learned a lot about kind of building characters and I learned about the terrible things about my sentences and how to deal with those things and I kind of got lots of practical um help uh and it's just nice being surrounded by other people who are doing the same kind of thing as me Mm. so yeah it was it was great but you obviously have a full-time job as well as being an author now. Mm. How have you how have you managed that and how do you think that helps your writing career? 
Or do you think it's more of a hindrance having a full-time? Um, I'm lucky in that at the moment I'm actually part-time, okay. uh, which frees up loads of hours to be you know, thinking and reading and writing. But I haven't always been in this lucky position. Uh, and previously, I'm you know, I have been working full-time, teaching full-time. And I think the nature of the job is quite important to kind of think about in terms of this stuff. So teaching is good and bad as a thing to do alongside writing. It's really good because, uh, particularly if you're teaching English, you spend your days talking about how stories are constructed. You spend your days talking and communicating with people. You spend much of your nights editing people's essays and so on. So you're kind of in language the whole time. So that's quite helpful. You also get quite generous holidays. Um, but then the flip side of that that's tricky is that you're often using the same muscles for teaching and looking at someone else's essays and so on as you are using when you're writing. So when it comes to sit down to your own work, you're kind of quite mentally exhausted. So you have to spend quite a lot of time you know, buoying yourself up and re-energising yourself. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's got positives and negatives. Um, so the last thing I'd say about teaching that's quite useful for writers is that uh, as a teacher, you stand at the front of this classroom where, and you're looking out onto this sort of row of children, rows and rows of seats for kids, and there are all of these kind of little psychodramas going on in friendship mm-hmm. groups, and, you know, that girl over there is not talking today, and usually she's more chatty, what's going on with her? And that boy over there is being really loud and boisterous, what's going on with him? And that kind of environment, and kind of looking out on that for five, six, seven hours a day, I think it does help you understand character and character psychology um, in an interesting sort of way that some people who work in more solitary ways maybe don't have access to. And when the book, um, when it first came to public, not publication, but when it was first sent out to press, mm. one of the first pieces of coverage, as we were discussing earlier, off tape, um, <laughs> tape? <laughs> um, back in 2002. <laughs> I'm at Noodle. Um, was um, it was a wonderful piece in The Guardian. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in it that the book is clearly autobiographical. Mm. It's in words. Can't take it back now. Oh, um, no. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of authors that we speak to very much shy away from, it, it, I want to say admitting, suggesting, hinting that some of their work is autobiographical. Yeah. Whereas to the reader, it may be that that is the case. That's clearly not, that's not the issue for you. I was wondering, you know, what makes you, feel confident enough to say yes a lot of me is in this book i suppose because when i said it's clearly autobiographical i didn't necessarily mean it in terms of this is my exact story so there are very significant elements of it that are like things that i've encountered so i suppose the process of kind of dealing with my sexuality and being anxious about how my Ghanaian parents would deal with the fact that i was gay um that stuff feels very true to me and to my experiences. But it's autobiographical in another way, which is that l- lots of the kind of characters are composites of people that I have seen and spent time with or have listened to or been observing very closely. So it's autobiographical in the sense that it's a reflection of lots of different bits of my life. Um, yeah, because there's an awful lot of this novel that doesn't map directly onto my experience. I don't know what it's like to be a 17-year-old house girl in Ghana. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, there are sort of challenges, I suppose, particularly that Amma goes through that are, are, feel very close to me. Um, and there are 
concerns that Belinda has about fitting in outsiderhood that also feel familiar to me, but there are also things that I've had to kind of invent and think about, you know. Isn't it incredible that, you know, regardless of where novels are set or which characters they follow, those themes of feeling a bit like an outsider mm. and trying to fit in mm. are just so mm. universal. Yeah. I struggle to think of a, any book that we've kind of interviewed authors about that doesn't in some way yeah. have a bit of an outsider character or yeah. touches upon those themes. It's so, it's almost like we, as writers, we sort of, we're sort of outsiders, yeah, you know, and we think need that's to right. write about those things. That's right. And I think also, there's something amazing about the process of writing and the process of reading, which is sort of, that kind of deals with that outsiderhood. So when you're a writer and you're sitting down inventing and creating these characters, you're kind of connecting with people and kind of going beyond that outsider status. And similarly, when you're reading, you get to kind of connect with other people and feel more involved or included in the world. So I suppose there's something deeply embedded in reading and writing about outsiderhood mm. too. Absolutely. And are you writing something new? No, no. Uh, I'm thinking. <laughs> okay. Give me that. <laughs> One no, I'm, I'm thinking about something at the moment. I haven't put pen to paper yet, but an idea is really slowly forming, and I'm enjoying this sort of process of just daydreaming about it. So, as with Hold, I've got some characters in mind. I don't exactly know what they're going to do, but I know what they're like. So I just spend, you know an hour or so a day just kind of mulling over the behaviour of these people and trying to make them a bit more solid to me. Um, and it's fun at the moment just sort of learning about them, I suppose. Mm. And because some authors say, you know, the, the trick is to write every day, just mm. you know, as long as you've got 500 words down the page, you know, that's going to pr- push you along. For you, obviously, the thinking process yeah. is, is really important to your writing process. Could you hazard a guess a split? you know, how much time you spend thinking, how much time you actually spend writing, and when you actually sit and write, does it just pour onto the page? Mm, That's a really good question again. Um, (laughs) I would say it's mostly thinking, you know, I'd say it's mostly thinking, and I suppose it's difficult to describe that thinking, because some of it is, like, literally just staring out of the window and doing absolutely nothing, um, and then my partner comes in and says, what are you doing, Michael? And I just have to <laughs> apologise, it will explain. Um, so there's that kind of daydreaming thinking. And then there's kind of thinking as you're writing and pausing to think whilst you're putting together sentences. Um, so there's lots of different kinds of mulling things over that go on, I suppose. But that is the majority of what I do. Uh, and then the writing tends to be, it comes out in a kind of stream and then I look back at it and then very slowly kind of make it as neat and sharp as it possibly can be. But, uh, and I don't think this is an uncommon thing at all. I feel like if the thinking that I do before I start writing is high quality and I've worked out all the pitfalls and kind of figured out the logic of a character's progression and all of that stuff beforehand, it makes the writing much more fluent and it comes more naturally to me. Um, yeah, so that's how I kind of justify staring out of the window for yeah. four hours to myself and to my partner. <laughs> this is a nice view. It's funny though, isn't it? Because I, whenever I sit there and I'm thinking about my book, I always feel guilty because mm. it isn't, I'm not getting things down. Mm. And I know that I like, and do you, do you just, are you just staring out of the window? Sometimes. Or are you, are you, are you wonderful. Are Sometimes. You, you know, yeah. do, do you, are you kind of writing notes? Are you like recording kind of those thoughts or are you just letting the sort of the web grow in your head? Sometimes there is literally just very, very um, passive uh, 
stillness, me in a room, just looking at my hands and thinking about, well, what might Belinda think about my hands? Um, <laughs> or sometimes there's this thing which one of my creative writing teachers um, on the MA course suggested, which is like, doing domestic tasks. So there's lots of me doing laundry, uh, lots of kind of shuffling things around the house, lots of me kind of rearranging my bookshelves, things that are quite mindless. And in those mindless moments, things occur to me and then I'll kind of jot them down. Mm. Um, and you're multitasking. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're getting your laundry done. Yeah. Exactly. Your partner can't um. complain then, can you? <laughs> <laughs> I find that like I've, I've allowed myself a little bit more leeway in terms of being like, right, this is what I know I need to figure out and I would write it down maybe like the kind of plot points that I need mm, to figure out mm. and then and I just kind of trust my subconscious mind to yeah, bring them up yeah, at yeah, some yeah, point yeah. and it works yeah. if you just if you're just kind of like I'm not going to stress about that because yeah. it's not there at the moment but then when it happens and you're kind of running or you're mm. putting the bins out you're like yes yeah. my brain delivered <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you're going running I, I was about to say like I like a, a shower <laughs> I'm in the shower <laughs> I don't know it sounds a bit wanky maybe but I think the more and more you write, the more you start to trust your process and you start to realise that, oh, actually, I had all these ideas about how one must go about writing a novel and they don't work for me and I found a way that works for me and it might not be the most kind of efficient to the objective eye, but it helps me to get things done. So I'm going to stick to it. So. Yeah. And you have to appreciate, like, kind of your own your own process and your yeah. own timeframes because, like, if you're, if you're trying to, to match someone else's... Yeah. You're just going to end up being frustrated yeah, 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 and yeah. bitter about the whole process. Yeah. And, like, and the last thing that you want as someone who loves writing is to sit there thinking, like, I should be doing this or I should be doing that. Because yeah. then you kind of, like, miss the wonderful bits. Yeah. About it. Yeah. It's funny because in my sort of early or the early stages of my writing um, of this novel, I was sort of obsessed with those little articles in The Guardian about the, the writer's ritual. You know, I wake up at 6am and I go for a run and then I have some lemon tea and then I pray or whatever it is that people do. And I think it's because at that point in your writing career, you're kind of searching for an answer and then very quickly you realise that there is no answer. You just have to kind of muddle along and find a way that works for you. Um, yeah. I think that's such good advice and I think that'll be so reassuring to anyone who's listening and trying to muddle along. Mm. And Hold is fantastic. Thank you for writing it and we're so excited that you're going to be at the Riff Raff on September the 13th. Hooray, can't wait. Yeah, Yeah, everyone go out and buy it. (laughs) Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. The Riff Raff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com. 